is Radio Siam, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission, to probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On September 22, 2017, archaeologist and anthropologist Professor Jason DeLeon of the University of Michigan met with a panel of SIAM students and faculty to discuss his ongoing Undocumented Migration Project and his award-winning 2015 book, The Land of Open Graves, Living and Dying on the Migrant Trail. Just two weeks after visiting us at Cornell, Jason was awarded a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship, also known as the Genius Grant, in recognition of his important multidisciplinary research. The challenges, rewards, and necessity of such boundary-pushing work was the focus of our discussion. It's time to think things over. Stay tuned for Radio Siam. Welcome to the latest installment of the Siam's podcast series. Um, we're here today with Jason De Leon, who's an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Michigan. Um, we're going to be discussing um, his book, The Land of Open Graves, Living and Dying on the Migrant Trail, which was published by the University of California Press in 2015, uh, focusing on the introduction and the first three chapters. Uh, this is uh, really amazing book, and it won a number of prizes, a couple from the American Anthropological Association, which is our podcast partner, and I just will mention those. He received the Margaret Mead Award from the Society for Applied Anthropology, which is for a younger scholar bringing anthropology to the public, which I think he does extremely well in this particular book, um, and he also received the book prize from the Society for Latin American and Caribbean Anthropology. Um, I'm Kurt Jordan. I'm the director of the Cornell Institute of, uh, for Archaeology and Material Studies. Um, and we're going to be uh, talking for about an hour here with Jason about his, uh, about his work. And we've got an audience of graduate students and, uh, and faculty members here to talk with Jason. So welcome, Jason. Thank you. All right. Um, I'm Katie, and I'm a first-year um, MA student. And my first question is that when I was uh, reading the chapters we were assigned out of uh, the land of open graves, um, I noticed that, well, it was a lot more compelling than most of the academic reading that I had been doing. <laughs> and um, you focused a lot on violence and uh, first-person storytelling. And I, was, I, I thought that was what made it more compelling. I was wondering if it was your intention to make it more compelling or what other intentions you had with including violence? Um, well, I think, number one, I never intended to write a book. <laughs> I mean, as a trained archaeologist, um, I came out of a program where people don't, Penn State people don't write books, really, until you are a full professor and you have kind of pet projects. But to get tenure there, you basically produce articles. And so I came out of a discipline, or out of a training program, where I thought that I was just going to write a bunch of articles, and that would just be what get me consistent tenure. And then Michigan says to me, you better write a book if you want to keep this job. So part of the writing the book was like, I need to keep my job kind of thing. Um, and so I had never really thought about, about a book project until I was forced to. Um, and then once I started getting into the, into the writing, um, you know, I knew the book was going to be about violence because undocumented migration is an inherently violent social process. Um, but what I didn't want to do was write about it in a way that um, perhaps I would write about something like Stone Tool, which in the past when I've written about those things in very technical terms, um, and in sort of, you know, it's hard to be compelling when you write about bipolar debitage. I mean, it's, it's, mm -hmm. um, and I think you probably could do it if you think about it in, in real ways. Um, but, you know, I had to really rethink how I was going to present all this stuff. And um, I started writing the book and I realized that if I was going to do it, I needed to write it in a way that, that I felt good about the stories I was telling, that I was sort of being true to the, to the people that I had worked with. Um, and I didn't want to punish the reader, you know, for like, pick up this book, I was sort of thinking about, does someone want to look at these words on paper and, and sit with a book? Um, if, and how do I keep you turning the pages sort of thing? And so I started, I read a bunch of ethnographies as I was writing this book in the beginning, and then, and then I stopped reading those books. They were, they were very painful to me again. Um, and so I started going back and reading ethnographies. I really liked things that, that I remembered some undergraduate and graduate students. Um, and then I just started reading novels and going, look, I mean, I've already got the technical and the methodological and the theoretical stuff 
kind of down because I've been thinking about this stuff for a long time, but the writing, you know, I want to draw on other on people who actually are concerned about words and not just, I'm going to vomit on the page and then hopefully <laughs> you'll want to, you know, you'll get my, my story. I really was like thinking about narrative and arc and, and that kind of stuff. But yeah, with the violence thing, I mean, it's, um, I think it can be, it's sort of compelling and, and maybe gut-wrenching at times because for me that was how it, it was experienced. I didn't want to translate it to make it like suck the life out of it. Hi, Dusty Bridges, second year MA student in archaeology. Uh, I have a question about something you didn't address that much in these chapters we were assigned. Um, so you briefly mentioned the Tohono O'odham Nation, uh, whose territory encompasses a large portion of the Sonoran Desert um, and even spans the border. And you say in a footnote that it's addressing Tohono Nation is beyond the scope of his book, and I think that's fair. It probably deserves its own book. Um, but I wondered if you would expect the same components of the hybrid collective that you discuss in play in the Tohono Odom Nation, uh, in that portion of the Sonoran Desert. Um, would you expect to see prevention through the terms operating in the same way? Um, you know, that's a great question, and it does... The, the things that I write about in this book are very much happening on the nation as well. Um, one of the things that I was always concerned about is here I am painting this picture of this really brutal desert that is killing a lot of people, um, but it's doing those things within the context of um, you know, U.S. border enforcement and always trying to be careful of saying, look, the desert is brutal if you are a migrant coming through, um, but if you are a native person, if you are a Tohono O'odham, the, the desert is your home. The desert is a, is a place that is of, of immense importance and I don't want to paint it as this horrible place across the board, right? And so thinking about, I, I, and, I, and I sort of talk about how, you know, for Native folks, the things that, the temperature, the, the wildlife, those are things that are looked at in a, in a much different light compared to, to migrants. Um, and so I, I sort of always wanted to keep that in the back of my mind, saying there's different perspectives on this landscape, um, and, and I'm really focusing on, on a particular one and having to, to um, not spend as much time as I would like to talking about the Native experience. I think that, um, so this stuff does happen on the reservation, um, and the unfortunate part of the, of the Honolulu experience is the fact that, you know, they're living in an occupied territory now with U.S. military or border patrol, um, and they've got their own kind of really strong take on, on border enforcement, and unfortunately, I mean, they've taken the brunt of a lot of this um, policy. The numbers of fatalities that have occurred on the nation are, are more than even in this region I'm talking about. So they, and they've had to foot the bill for a lot of those expenses. Um, you know, they're dealing with border patrol coming onto their property, arresting people for no reason, harassment, destruction of, of um, natural resources. Um, and you know, I, my friends who who are Tone Autumn, um, you know, everybody made it pretty clear that if you, that's a whole other book and one that would take a, a, a pretty significant commitment to that community. Um, and so, just things that I wasn't able to really. Um, but that's a project that needs to happen, um, and I think that um, that at some point I'm hoping that there'll be more Native folks writing about their experiences. There's someone, um, there's a guy named Mike Wilson, who is a Tohono O'odham humanitarian, who has been really an outspoken critic of Border Patrol and of the things that are going on on the nation, but um, he's kind of one of the only super vocal people at this point, and it's kind of persona non grata, because um, not everybody agrees with him about this policy. I mean, there are some folks on the reservation who um, you know, who aren't necessarily taking the kind of humanitarian view. I mean, it's, it's, everybody, it's a, a range of opinions about, about border enforcement, much like in, in other parts of Arizona. Um, but, the, but that's a, a, a project that I think really needs to be done because they are, um, you know, having some very difficult times with, with U.S. border patrol. Um, hi, my name is uh, Liam Murphy. I'm a first-year PhD student in anthropology. Um, I was really interested in the kind of the public face of this book and, and how, how it is directed towards the public um, and also in the way that you structured your research questions in a way that was, I, I know you had mentioned in your talk last night that you didn't, hadn't had the intention of being activist in, in the work you had done, but it, the book definitely has a strong activist bent to it. Um, and I was, I was wondering specifically, there's a few mentions you have of, of how this project would be perceived by the public and especially by, by funding agencies. 
And I'd like to know about how in structuring a project like this that has explicitly kind of political uh, motivations or goals, um, how the kind of presence of the NSF or of your university's institutional kind of uh, uh, processes affect your kind of composition of your research questions and of your research uh, process. You know, it's, it's funny, when I started this project, I vividly remember having dinner with, I was having dinner with a colleague at my University of Washington, and she said to me, she's like, so how do your politics kind of fit into all this research that you're starting to do on these topics? And I looked at her with a straight face and I said, politics don't have anything to do with this. I'm a scientist. I am, I am doing a objective archaeological analysis <laughs> of stuff. I mean, I'm not a, I have no interest in politics. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing science. And she looked at me and was like, "Man, that must really help you sleep at night." <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, and I really had to kind of come around because I came out of a program where where politics and research just don't mix. You know, and, and you can think about politics and inequality and power in the in prehistory, but we sure as hell don't want to talk about it right now. I mean, it, it, those are very different things. And um, so I had a lot of learning and growing up to do about this sort of stuff and had to come to the realization that just because the decision to do a research project that is deemed sort of apolitical, that's a political decision, right? To, to the, the decision to do politics, to do research that's, that you would deem apolitical is in fact a political decision. And I think a lot of folks don't really um, get that. Um, I, I had a funding agency recently that I won't name um, because we're trying to work it out still. Um, but they didn't like, I pitched a, a, a forensic project that I'm working on about, about the stuff, and they said, well, we don't do that kind of complicated political stuff. Like, we're, that's, that's, that's kind of too messy. We're interested in like other sciencey sorts of things. And I want to be like, it's all political, you know? And, and it's, um, you know, you can still do science, you can be rigorous, you can work on these, on these important research questions and engage with the, with the politics. Um, it doesn't have to be mutually kind of exclusive. Um, but I really had to come around to a lot of this stuff. And um, as I was kind of coming up at the end of the book and thinking about the implications of it, it was impossible to, to avoid the politics of that stuff. And um, I just kind of, I'm totally fine if, if you don't like the politics or the conclusions that I, that I come to or the political implications of the work, but I never want people to question the rigor of the science. Um, and so it's, um, you can hate the conclusions, but, but but you, I really don't want you to be able to, um, to critique the methods for being sloppy or, you know, or for being clouded by politics. It's like, look, I'm, um, I want to, to do good research, uh, and it just so happens I'm doing research in a context that is inescapably um, uh, political. Um, and so the activist stuff has just it sort of came out of that. And, and by the end, too, um, I think in the beginning, if I had written this book after the first season, my feelings wouldn't be as strong as they ended up being you know, in the year six or seven. After all the death and after all the suffering, I couldn't then write it in a very sterile way. I had to come in. I was so upset, and I was so you know I was just mad about a lot of things and sad. And so those things really came out over the course of, of this experience. Um, you know, and, and people would say things to me like, you know, it's a really angry book, you know, it's a really graphic book. And I said, well, yeah, this shit, like, right, this stuff is really, uh, you know, <laughs> this is graphic, this is painful. This mm -hmm. is I don't know any other way to do it, uh, and. Um, you know, so it's a, there's a lot of me in there in, in that sense that I just I didn't know what to do with it, so I just decided it, just, it had to be in there um, anyway. Um, and then the kind of the so the, the, the politics of the of the research questions, um, I think now you know NSF is really interested in this sort of stuff. And very early on, um, Deborah Winslow was at NSF was super supportive, and she was the first person to support this project, and um, that was really surprising. I was like, wow, these funding agencies really you know they think that this is this is important work, and so um, that gave me hope that okay, maybe I'm on the right track, and I can I can get additional funding for this stuff. Um, but uh, you know, so I've had some luck with it with the funding, and then the, the the public stuff. I don't like the term public anthropology. I really don't because if you call someone a public anthropologist, what is the uh, the opposite of that, right? You're like a, you're a private anthropologist. I mean, I don't know, people, <laughs> people say, oh, you're an engaged anthropologist, and then I would say, well, what's the the other side of that coin, the disengaged anthropologist. And so I think, um, you know, calling something public because it's readable, um, you know, we kind of re need to rethink that sort of stuff. And um, I think that, uh, you know, 
we have such interesting things to say as a discipline, and yet we're really good at making things not accessible. And um, I sort of think about writing now as you know, the way I teach. I want students to be excited about the discipline, you know, and, and we've got so much to say, and so I want to present stuff to them that's going to get them excited like I am excited about stuff. And so um, that really shaped the way that I started writing the book. Because when I was working on the book, and I remember sending it to the editor um, at UC Press, and, and she was great because she was really um, open and, like, has no problem telling me if I'm, if I'm going off the rails. And she would say things to me like, this part I really like, You're, it's really readable, it, it, it sounds like you. This next chapter, you're trying to sound too smart. You're trying to sound like a professor. You're killing me here with this narrative. Like you need to go back and smooth out these these these, um, these things. And I really felt like, okay, well, I gotta sound smart, you know. And, <laughs> and and so I need to I need to sound like I'm a professor and I have a PhD. And um, and then I came around to the fact that like, look, things can be smart and theoretically rich and be readable. I hope it's just it's just figuring out a way to to do that. But nobody ever told me that that was a possibility. I mean, my the the, the writing. That I got as a graduate student was, was pretty was pretty abysmal. I mean, basically, you need to write like your advisor. Um, the only advice I ever got, maybe the one good piece of advice I got from my advisor was, don't write compound sentences. You know, simple <laughs> ideas. And so, and I kind of you know, and 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 and, and I kind of take that approach still, but but I take it more now in like a Raymond Carver, um, you know, John Steinbeck kind of way, where I'm you know, very simple sentences. You know, six words can say a lot. do this balancing act of, of being accessible and, and maintaining the, the rigor. Thank you. Yeah, I think you've <laughs> struck it very well. <laughs> I'm uh, Chris Juarez. I'm a first-year master's student in archaeology. Um, in one of your chapters, you talk about this intriguing concept of the American perception of immigration as both unsightly and distasteful, while simultaneously like an engrossing spectacle of danger and violence for American consumption. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this, maybe how this perception, this dichotomous perception came about and whether it's influenced by today's acts of xenophobia and racism from the political nexus of our government. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that our perceptions of immigration, I mean, the border, we're so fascinated by the U.S.-Mexico border for all kinds of reasons. And I think in, in this current political moment, the border is this place of danger, right? This place of violence, this place where the other is climbing over the fence and is coming to take away our jobs and, and to, to kill us all in our sleep. Um, that's a very easy narrative to sell, and we've been selling that for a long time. Before it was, it wasn't necessarily the U.S.-Mexico border, but, um, you know, Ellis Island. Uh, these unsightly, you know, uh, Eastern Europeans are coming, or the Irish are coming, and, and we can paint them as these monsters uh, to mask a whole bunch of other sorts of things. Um, and politicians, people like Donald Trump, are very, very good at playing up on, on these fears and partly, too, I think he really believes it. I mean, I think that um, that there are some folks who who are able to manipulate this perception of, of, of the violent migrants um, and the dangers of, of these other places that are sending these folks here. Um, there's some folks who, who I think are very good at playing up on that, and then there are other folks who just believe that. Um, and so I think Trump is, is someone who believes that, um, unfortunately. And um, it's super easy to sell. I mean, that is like... You know, talking about border security, um, that's an easy way to, to mask domestic economic policies. That's an easy way to mask, you know, um, all of the, the things that politicians don't want people to be thinking about, to rallying around, right? Like fair wages. That's that's not a, something that um, that I think a lot of these politicians want the voting base to be thinking about. Um, your jobs have gone away because of the Mexicans, right? That's kind of that, that's an easy sell. And I remember being at a with a Trump rally in Warren, Michigan. Right in, I guess, January of last last year, and I'm in this room with a bunch of people who are waiting for him to come out, and they're just chanting "Build the wall" for like an hour. And I remember thinking, like, these people have no idea what you know. Build a wall. They're they're sort of imagining it as we're going to put this big wall up because we need it for for security purposes. But basically, build a wall when you chant that. It's, you're not really thinking about the wall. It's it's an easier way to say. We hate Mexicans. We hate Latinos. We hate we hate foreigners. Kinds of things. So it, it masks a lot of this um, xenophobia that is um, it's so easy to play up on. And it's uh, it's unfortunate that it doesn't matter. You know, I'm, I'm glad I'm not a historian because I feel like I would 
I would just keep going insane by saying, look, this has happened 20 years ago, this happened 100 years ago, we've been doing this for a long time, nobody listened. Nobody listens to anthropologists either, but, um, but you know, we, 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 we see this happening um, um, you know, cyclically, and it's just, a, it's just an easy go-to, you know? Um, and at the same time, as easy as it is to, I think, play up on the fear of, of, of immigrants and the fear of, of, of foreigners, um, I also don't want to pitch this other simplistic narrative to say all immigrants are good, migrants are good, open borders. I mean, it's a very compl complicated thing. And, um, you know, at, at times I've been asked to speak, you know, I was talking about immigration reform, you know, and, and amnesty. And I'm saying, like, well, you know, that's like, there's no one kind of solution. It's not an easy, you know, it's not a, a simple kind of process. It's very complicated. And people don't like that on the, on the left either. Like, you know, give us some easy, some easy things to, to, to wrap our heads around. And, you know, you can't have immigration reform without um, political stability in Latin America, without um, economic development in Latin America, all these things that, um, that maybe people in the U.S., they're pro-immigrants and, they and they want to fix our immigration system, but they don't necessarily want to invest in, like, Latin America kind of thing. And, and once you start complicating it in those terms, it becomes a real nightmare to think about, you know, what, what to do first. And that's one of the complaints about the book at the end is that I don't give any good policy recommendations. I don't have it. Like, you know, like, I don't know where to start. I mean, I, it's, um, it's, a, it's a really difficult kind of issue. And so at least at the end of the day, the, the goal is to give people more information about this stuff and then they can make a, a more informed decision about how to feel about the border wall or, or immigrants or economic reform. Hello, I'm Matt Velasco. I'm an assistant professor here in the Department of Anthropology at Cornell. I um, I want to bring together a few of the themes that we've talked about, um, hybrid collective, the accessibility of our work, uh, and public perception of, of immigrants. And I, in your book, you use this theory of the hybrid collective, this idea of, um, of the relationships between humans and non-humans and landscapes that condition certain potentials for violence, certain effects of, of violence. And it, it resonates broadly with anthropologists. I think we'll talk a bit more about how your work transcends disciplinary boundaries. But certainly in archaeology, we've been thinking more about ways, uh, in my own work uh, as a bioarchaeologist studying uh, human remains, a way that dead bodies shape political action uh, in the present. And so broadly speaking, I, I found your work you know, is, it fit very comfortably with ideas I have about how the world works. Uh, with regard to agency, human action, and the way we move through the world. In my own life, what is often the most difficult to wrap my head around is the per pervasive ideology in the United States about individualism and individual choice. And they, they chose to come here. They knew what we were, they were, they were risking you know, in the case of, uh, of uh, undocumented migrants. And I wonder, and you do a good job of bringing together actual, you know, uh, relatable examples of how the hybrid collective would work with the, uh, with the meat industry, for example, and all the moving parts that bring you a hamburger. And uh, for those who didn't read the book, that is one example uh, of, of this concept. And I'm wondering when you, you know, in, in public um, talks or, or other kind of, you know, outside of academia, have you been able to have you seen this idea of a more broader kind of structural forces penetrating public consciousness? Have you, in your own classes, how do you fight against this really pervasive uh, and, in my opinion, pernicious ideology of, of individual choice and that we are all in this amorphous playing field and some make bad decisions and others make good decisions? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the easy go-to for people to say, you know, the law is the law. Um, you know, if you are, um, if you make this choice, you make a, it's a bad choice, right? If you die, it's your fault. I actually gave a talk at a university in, in Michigan a couple of years ago, and I was talking mostly about the book stuff, and, and a lot of it was about the, um, about Jose Takuri, who had, who had gone missing in the desert, and, and, and Maricela, who, who, whose body we found. And I tell this kind of story about, about these people crossing and dying or going missing, and, and the idea, right, is to connect these larger structural forces, say, you know, border security works this way, 
people get caught up in the system and um, and they're making individual choices, but those choices are shaped by these by these structures. And so you're not coming to the desert because Mexicans love the desert kind of thing. You're coming to the desert because border security structure has has made that the path of supposedly least resistance. And so there are these a lot, a lot of kind of things at work. And I had this anthropologist ask me at the end. He said, "So I don't really know what I'm supposed to get from this, what, like from this." It's like, is that a question? Question? I don't like you know, it's a Q and A thing like the awkward. And I said, I said, I don't know what to talk, man. Like I just like put some ideas out there. You kind of deal with it. However, pick, pick what you want from it. And he goes, "So what you're telling me is that these people made the decision to go out in the desert, and then they die." I guess you could put it that way. You, you missed some other pieces, but that's part of it. And he's like, well, maybe they're just like, you know, he used an expletive. He was like, maybe they're just effing stupid, and that's their fault kind of thing. And this was an anthropologist, you know, a sociocultural anthropologist. And I remember, and of course, you know, he's a kind of an anomaly. Everyone in the room is like, oh, he's doing it again. Uh, we're so sorry. He does it every meeting. Um, but, you know, th there were folks who, who I was expecting to be more attuned to the complexity of, of this issue. And... And still very much want to make it about about the individual, and um, and that's hard. I mean, that's something that I think we constantly fight with as a discipline, as individuals, like on a political level right now. You, know, you get on Facebook and you post something political, and someone says, you know, this cop didn't shoot this person because they're black; they shot him because they, you know, because they didn't they they had a tail light out, or you know, whatever whatever kind of excuses we can justify for these for these actions. And um, I think it just makes people more comfortable. To think about it on an individual level, because then they can say, "Well, um, the system isn't broken. The system isn't racist. The system isn't isn't um, designed to to privilege certain people and not others. These are all individual choices." And we, I think we as Americans really firmly believe in, in in individualism, and because it makes us feel better about stuff. Um, and then it, the goal then is to, is to say, "Okay, you want to paint this narrative of." hardworking immigrant who comes to this country, learns English, starts a business, puts their kids through college, all that kind of stuff. And it's like, that's the story you've been told by, by the ancestors, but hey man, it sucked to be at Ellis Island in the early 20th century. I mean, it sucked to be Irish, it sucked to be Italian. People were, you know, were, um, they weren't noble then. We've had this kind of historical distance to, to make people noble and to make them um, these kind of noble individuals. But at the time, you know, um, and, I, and that's why I think, you know, archeology span and kind of thinking about stuff in the past can be a way to undermine those um, that 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 idea, um, and it's kind of a bummer because you know, for me at least, I grew up drinking the Kool Aid. You know, I mean, as a, as a as a proud American citizen, you know, I was taught that I could be anything I wanted to be, and that you know, you work hard. My parents were hardworking immigrants, and um, you know, I'm super patriotic. And when you come to the realization that um, that you you can believe in the idealism. But the reality is not. Um, it's, 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 there's a disconnect. Um, that's a bummer. I mean, that's like when you kind of like when you like look behind the curtain, you're like, oh man, this whole this, there's a lot of stuff that's working against me, or a lot of stuff working against a lot of other people. Um, how do I now rectify that understanding of the world? Um, but it's hard for students. You know, I think that um, one of our jobs as as, as, as um, ed educators is to help students kind of see that um, and. Um, Real challenging. Uh, I mean, you don't want people to become cynical. Um, hopefully not, but you know, you need at least them to try to give them a way to think about it in more nuanced ways. Thank you. So I want to ask you, uh, Kurt Jordan again. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about a little bit about sort of how you got to be where you were and, and how some of your earlier training um, and particularly your, your origins as an archaeologist affected your ability, uh, you know, your approach to this, the subject matter and how, you know, and it, it helped you do things differently, I think. You know, I think you mentioned yesterday the archaeological sensibility, right? And so how, how is that sort of seen um, um, in your work? And your ability to produce, you know, really, uh, really such an impactful and important book. Um, you know, I, I love archaeology, and it's I, I, I'm sad that I don't get to do it like I used to. Um, I, but I think it, um, when I was a little, you know, Indiana Jones was when I was a kid. That was <laughs> someone that I really wanted to be. Um, you know, and then I, when I started college and realized that, um, that that wasn't 
it's going to be the case. You know, it's going to be <laughs> looking at that giant place of midden and sorting with a, with tweezers for hours on end. Um, I wasn't put off by that, but I but I still always kind of kept the um, just the, the the joy of discovery and and what I came to kind of understand that the archaeological sensibility I think for me over time was just thinking about the world in a different way, in a material way, thinking about you know our relationship to um, um, to artifacts and to objects. Um, when I started this project, you know, I spent almost 10 years working in Latin America doing archaeology, and I started this project, and I was kind of doing archaeology, you know, I was thinking about stuff in an archaeological kind of way, um, but I didn't, I had first made a clean break. I said, okay, I went to the University of Washington, I gave a job talk, and I said, hey, I've just done a dissertation on 40,000 pieces of bipolar debitage, um, but I'm not doing that anymore, now I'm going to do this vague poorly defined project on immigration. At that point, I was just saying, look, I want to write about border crossings. I didn't have any idea that, that archaeology was going, to, was going to be there. And I remember saying to my wife at one point, I was like, you know, I feel really bad. Like, I just wasted 10 years of my life doing archaeology, and now I've, I've made this, this clean break, and, and I hope that, that maybe I'll, I'll see it again. And she said, I don't think it's ever going to go away. I think it, it'll probably come back in an interesting way. And it sort of did come back in interesting ways with the, with the, the field work. But then over the years, I've come to realize, too, that the type of ethnography that I do, the type of, of anthropology that I do, whether it's doing forensic stuff or taking pictures or doing persistent observation, is always shaped by my, my archaeological training. And um, it's, you know, and I think this idea of this archaeological sensibility for me is um, it, it, it shapes everything that I do, the questions that I ask, the way that I think about the world. And um, I think archaeologists have, have so much to to contribute to the discipline, especially the sociocultural folks. I mean, we've got this whole, everyone's interested in materiality um, and sort of theories of stuff, but they're really like not paying attention to the folks who are, that's our bread and butter, right? We've been thinking about stuff for a long time. Let's have some more interesting kind of conversations. And it's unfortunate that typically archaeologists will, we will mine the ethnographic record for analogy when we need them. Um, and, but we really should be saying, look, we'll, we'll, we'll look to you guys to get some stuff about how people were using objects in the past, but we really have a lot to say about, um, you know, stuff, whether it's cyphermation processes or taphonomy. I think that, that those, the theories that are coming from archaeology could really improve our understanding of material culture today. And, um, you know, I really, I, I want to push, I want to push that conversation in, in, in new kinds of directions. But, um, but yeah, I, I think I do my kind of weird work that I do now, the sort of hybrid stuff I'm doing, I cannot escape the archaeological approach, and so I'm I'm always concerned about field methods. I, I think that a lot of a lot of my sociocultural colleagues, for them, the method section, you know, is not is not important. Two sentences. I did some observation. I did ethnography. For me, like I need to spend some real time explaining to you how I come to these conclusions, where the data come from, um, because you couldn't get away with that, right, in archaeology. Right? If I wrote a paper and submitted it and said, yeah, you know, the Olmecs used obsidian. Um, you know, X, Y, and Z, and then you were like, well, where the hell, how do you know that, right? What, 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 what does the data uh, look like? Um, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't fly. So those things always carry over um, into, into other sorts of stuff. And so I think that uh, it's, uh, it's good that, that I have this, for me, at least this, this training in archaeology, because I think it helps me to do all this other stuff in a much better way. And also, that training in archaeology, getting into sociocultural stuff and thinking about those relationships was really helpful getting into the forensic work that I've been doing, it would have been too hard to jump from ethnography into forensic science without, you know, as quickly as I, as I have, without some other, you know, sort of scientific on the ground training. But I drank the Kool-Aid very early on about the four fields, you know, that you could study the human condition through archaeology, language, biology, and, um, and, and, pre and history and materiality. You know, I went to UCLA, which is a very large four field program. Um, I was there as an undergraduate. And, um, you know, people were, were constantly being sold on that, that we are four fields and together we're a very powerful kind of entity. And, and I firmly believe that. And the training that I got there was really um, um, across the four, sub, the four subfields. It wasn't until later on that I realized that we'd been lying to people about that. But, like, we are, t we are a four-field discipline, um, but we have some silos where we kind of, you know, we occupy these different places in a lot, um, in a, in a lot of institutions. And, there's a lot of barriers to, to jumping across um, subdisciplines, unfortunately, and I think that um, you know, working against that. I mean, I always joke that 
people say, you know, we're, we're a four-field department, and, and it's always like, well, you're a department with four fields, kind of thing, right? So I, I think that um, there's a lot of pushback, and, um, you know, people, when I started this, this work, there was people who would say to me, you're not an ethnographer, you're an archaeologist pretending to be an ethnographer. And then I had archaeologists saying to me, you're not an archaeologist, this is not archaeology, you, you're doing, you're a postmodernist now, and, and, and you're, you're ruining the discipline kind of thing. And so, <laughs> we colleagues, you know, so people who, in the, same, in the same day, will go and tell students, we are a four-field program, and, you know, and, and, and holism is very important, and, uh, you know, so I think that um, it's, a, it's a real struggle. But I think that there is a new wave of graduate students who um, who are thinking about things in way more nuanced ways than, 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 than a lot of other people who have come before them in terms of interdisciplinary work, where the four fields, we're not thinking about four fields, but we're thinking about it more in terms of, these are my questions, and how do I answer the question? Can I, can I take from this from this field to, to answer this question or this other field? Um, I'm, it gives me hope when I talk to graduate students who are, who are doing you know, interdisciplinary work, and they're not getting hung up with what to call themselves. But I've had to, I mean, I just, you know, I had to fight for these different, you know, against these different categories to the point now where I just say, look, I'm an anthropologist, um, and depending on, on when you catch me, I'm, I'm doing, you know, one of these, one of these various things, or sometimes the things together. Yeah. Um, I suppose, jumping off of that, the art, the, um, Chapters we read of the book mostly focused on some of the socio-cultural stuff and then the forensic work that you did with pig carcasses. Um, and I was wondering if you could expand on what archaeological methods you used. I know Kurt talked about in class excavating kind of the remains, the um, stuff that migrants left behind when they were captured by border security. Yeah, I mean, what ended up happening was when I realized that migrants leave stuff in the desert, and and in the conversation that and I, I talk about it in the book, you know, sitting at, at dinner with a with a friend of mine who had done CRM work in Arizona, and she was the one who said, "Yeah, when we would do archaeological survey, we'd come across this migrant stuff," and you know, and, and she said something to the, to the effect of. If someone was really crazy or stupid, they could probably do some kind of weird thing on this. And so I said, hey, well, I'm a little bit of both. <laughs> <laughs> do this. And so when I went down and saw that there was all this stuff on the ground, um, and I realized, okay, this stuff is important. We can learn from these things. Um, but I can't come in here all willy-nilly and pick and choose what I want, right? You know, um, if we're going to do archaeology on this stuff, then we've got to treat this with, with the same kind of archaeological respect that we would with any other assemblage. And so... You know, I, I had this training to, you know, collect data in, in that in that way, and it was, um, you know, not, things weren't 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 subsurface; they were on the surface. So we were able to to do stuff quicker. Although in some ways it's worse because you've got more data to handle. You look at a, like a, a football field, the size of a, something the size of a football field covered in backpacks. That's a lot of data, and so we had to figure out, you know, how do we collect this stuff? How do we record this? And so, you know, using a total station to map stuff, using the GPS to, 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 to mark particular you know, features, treating these things as, as archaeological assemblages, drawing them in some instances, photographing them in others, um, sorting them in the field, collecting them, you know, analyzing them, and then bagging and taking stuff out. So things that I had done in other, in other contexts, um, in this context, but when it's on the surface and, and you're inundated with data, you, know, you come up with more difficult other kinds of questions that you maybe necessarily didn't have to, um, to deal with in the, in the past. And, and in some ways, it kind of sucks having all the archaeology contemporary. I think in, in some instances it's so hard because you have too much to deal with. Right? You've got too much data, and you don't really know where to begin. And it's hard to record. It, this would be much easier to record if it was in a one by one unit. Um, when it's when it's fifty meters long, you're like, what am I going to do with this whole stuff? And what can I say about this in, in kind of a meaningful way? Um, so we would collect this stuff archaeologically and think about it in those terms. And then I always knew that that I cannot stop there, that you cannot look at this stuff without putting it into the broader kind of context, and you cannot talk about the stuff without the voices of migrants. And there, are, and there have been people who had been collecting this stuff and been writing about these objects, making up stories about what they could mean, um, and people are still doing that. And I've been really critical of folks who, who want to do this archaeology contemporary and stop at the objects. 
um, I, you know, when I read manuscripts, people are writing about, about migrant stuff and there's no migrant voice in the thing. I mean, that really is upsetting to me because you, if I submitted a paper to American anthropologists and it was about Tohono um, Otum material culture, and I said, you know, Tohono Otum had this in their house and these are the sort of things that they, that they sort of, you know, are, are living with, and then there was no Tohono Otum voice in there, people would be like, what the hell is this? Like, this is so problematic on so many different levels. Um, these people are still alive, and you're writing about them without consulting them. Um, we would never do that, at least hopefully not. But people do that with the migrant stuff, where they want to write about these objects without talking to people. And um, I think that that we the the kind of power of archaeology contemporary is is um, is putting into conjunction with the sociocultural and having that. And that's where it gets really rich, where you I think where you're able to do both and put them on top of each other, um, and and kind of improve your understanding of the world. But um, in the beginning, I was like, I'm just going to pick up migrant stuff. I mean, these, you know, the, the, the water bottles and stuff, and, and, and maybe I'll, do, I'll interview some migrants, but you know, this, I'm really interested in the materiality. And then I, I realized very early on that, um, that, that just, that's not good research, that you're going to be so limited in that scope. And um, you know, people will always ask me, What's the, you know, is there an object that you found that really impacted you or the, the most important thing you've ever found? And then say, so, you know, there's things that I think are interesting in that, you know, you, have a kind of a, a, maybe a, a visceral reaction to, but the things that have most affected me have been the stories that I've told, the people that I've met. You know, um, those are the things that stay with me. You know, the interview about the, the, the father whose son has gone missing. That's what I think about in these contexts, not, you know, backpacks and shoes. Backpacks and shoes are important. That's the historical record. That's the archaeological record. But I don't want to lose sight of, of you know, the, the migrant narrative. Hi, Dusty again here. Uh, along those same lines, uh, you talk about returning humanity to the people who have essentially had it stripped from them uh, once they enter the borderlands and sometimes perish. Uh, in your photographic work, you, you talk about using face on photographs to uh, connect the viewer, the subject, and the researcher all together and undeniably connect the humanity to it. Um, when dealing with subjects who are no longer living, um, whose physical presence has essentially vanished or been fragmented, how do you convey that same sense of humanity to the viewer or reader? Yeah, that's a, a, a hard question that I think that I constantly struggle with. Um, you know, there are, there are pictures in the book of dead bodies, and that was not an easy decision to come to, to use those pictures. And, um, I spent a lot of time reflecting on do I use these pictures? What's the purpose of these pictures? What's going to be the impact of these pictures? Um, if I show you a dead body, is that can I also make you think about that dead body as as a mother of three, as a you know as a, as a person who has who has had a difficult life, who was working to improve the you know the living conditions of, of her family? Can I do that in the text? Um, enough to balance out that image so that it's not just this pornographic violent image that then you know it's, it's taken out of context so I, I think for me the photos of the dead and speaking about the dead it has to be in a way that's um, you know, that, a sensitive way and you know it's a, that's a constant struggle and at, at one point you know it was like okay maybe they shouldn't be in the book maybe I shouldn't you know and I, I, I had people telling me things like some parts that are so graphic. Why does it have to be so graphic and violent? And I'm like, that's what it is, you know? And I can't sanitize that because if, to do that, then I think it's, it's working against the, the goal of the work. And so the pictures, too, it's like, look at this person, this person who has died on U.S. soil for all of these reasons. We need to spend some time reflecting on that. And, um, you know, the dead are important. And I think that the, the visibility... Um, for me, was a very important thing. I mean, there are other books. There's a, a, a book about border crossing deaths that's just full of pictures of dead bodies, really gruesome pictures of dead bodies. And the, the context that you're given is people cross the desert and then they die, migrants kind of thing. Um, and but you don't know who these people are. You don't understand. There's no, you know, one dead body. I don't know that that the difference between one or the other. So why have 25 pictures of those of these different dead bodies just so we can have things to gawk at? Um, and uh, so I think you know 
the decision to, to, to talk about the dead is not taken lightly. Um, and um, yeah, that's a hard one. I mean, that's one that in the beginning, I really, I mean, I still struggle with it, but at, at least um, I kind of got to the point where um, by the end, I knew that there were certain things that needed to be seen. Hey, uh, Liam again. Um, so I think one of the kind of, I guess maybe the major kind of, or one of the major themes of the book is how this prevention through deterrence um, policy is uh, apparently quite effectively kind of, uh, kind of um, uh, preventing the state from feeling any sort of culpability, at least at least publicly. And I think some of the discussions we had about individualism kind of play into that. And uh, this idea of the Sonoran Desert as a hybrid collective that's that's being actively utilized by the state to to reduce their kind of to say that they don't have any agency in this, you know, it almost seems like it's it's a mass murder of sorts. It's it, they're using the the desert as a killing field. I think you explicitly draw analogies to uh, to the Desaparecidos and um, and and other other um, other uh, instances of state violence in this way. Um, and I'm I'm curious as to uh, the kind of the mechanisms in the state that lead to these decisions. These kind of bureaucrat the bureaucrats who kind of um, sanitize these reports and kind of uh, change their language. So there, in one way, the hybrid collective is a way of kind of spreading agency through uh, um, through uh, human and non-human actors. But I think it, your book really importantly maintains a level of culpability to human actors and, and kind of uh, portrays their their decisions and and uh, as as having you know an, an effect on other humans, um, and that being kind of the important kind of social um, uh, kind of uh, the social kind of uh, arena that's go that's that's happening. Um, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, you know, I think that with the materiality in the agency literature, when I started thinking about this stuff, you know, I was thinking, okay, the desert, I, I started looking into literature on, on materiality because I wanted to find kind of ways to talk about water bottles and, and other sorts of stuff. And once I started getting into the literature on, on objects and, and, and actants, one of the things I realized was that much of it is like super apolitical, right? Where people are writing about stoplights and speed bumps and the vibrancy of wood and tables and kinds of things, which that's a starting point maybe to get us thinking about things. But but man, I think we can find other things to kind of we can move out from that and, and start to get into into more um, difficult territory. Um, and so I was actually kind of put off by some of that literature because much of it was either apolitical or they would say things like we have to let the objects. You don't want to muddy them up by putting humans into this context and saying like, well, there's no separating these things, right? These things are connected and objects obviously do lots of work, but a person made those objects, put them into these different cultural contexts and they're doing all kinds of social work that um, is either implicit or, or, or explicit. And so I basically was like, all right, I'm gonna take these theories and I'm gonna see what happens if I graph them onto desert, rattlesnakes, fences, temperature, um, and think about those things in relationship to some person somewhere, some 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 policymaker is making decisions then about how these things are going to be active agents in, in these different settings. And I never wanted to lose sight of the political of the human actors in this because at the end of the day, you know, the, this part of the desert is doing work for for humans because because of this kind of this context. And um, it's hard, I think, sometimes for people on the ground to see that. I mean, even talking to border patrol agents who will, who don't really have a good understanding of why migrants are coming to the desert. I mean, they, they come into the agency later on and, and they don't have this historical memory of, it used to not be like this. Um, and partly because the agency does a very good job of sanitizing it and removing, when you look at the documents today, prevention of deterrence isn't a, even a, a term that's used anymore. The desert is really, is rarely discussed other than to say, the Border Patrol has been very good at rescuing migrants from the desert. That's kind of the, the, what they pitch to the public. But, but nobody ever goes, what the hell are they in the desert to begin with? Right? How did this whole thing kind of start? And so there's been a, a lot of erasure about this policy um, to where people then are on the ground and, and they don't really have a good understanding of, of, of how these pieces all kind of fit together. 
And I think it's it's kind of our job to look at the material, you know, these objects and these different actors that are that are doing stuff, and to think about the connections to to humans. And um, you know, I've been real critical about some of the materiality stuff where I say, look, you want to talk about wood and tables and other sorts of stuff because and, and you don't want to talk about humans in this context because I think it that, that makes you uncomfortable. Um, and that there was a, um, a, a graduate student that I was having a conversation with once, and she said these great things to me. She's like, you know, I don't like the materiality of literature because I think it's just a euphemism for, or it's a, it's a, it's a way to, to talk about people without talking about race, without talking about inequality. You can focus on the objects and then put these blinders on about all this other stuff. She's like, that's why it leaves me with a bad taste in my mouth. Um, and and I, I would agree completely about about there's a particular sort of set of, of scholars who who just want to kind of be in a certain at a certain scale and not worry about this other kind of stuff. I mean the apolitical research, right? Um, and and I think that there's so much that can be learned by thinking about materiality in much broader context. And um, you know it's really it's it's, it's having this. Um, this balancing act between these different kind of scales and, these different, and thinking about these different, these different um, actors as they're all working together. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and the whole thing about culpability is, you know, that's you have to show demonstrate. You can, you, I think you can, you can, you can demonstrate it in saying these policies are in place and this thing happens, and then now the desert is doing this stuff. But you know, the desert doesn't kill people because it likes to kill people, right? I mean. Desert's not killing the Tohono O'odham. They've been living there for thousands of years in this context, you know, making a, making a living and, and being very happy. In this other context, the desert is doing, you know, other type of, of human work, and it's important to recognize those those relationships. But that's why I think that you know we can do a lot more pushing that materiality stuff in, in, in interesting directions. Okay, so that's about all the time we have uh, we have now. So I uh, want to thank Jason for his work and for his time today uh, talking. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. You've been listening to Radio Siam, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next podcast will be announced soon on siams.cornell.edu. Radio Siams is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. You can find all AAA-sponsored podcasts at www.americananthro.org. Thanks for listening.